listening to The Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Hello and welcome to The Big Album Show. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. 1997, the year New Labour and Tony Blair came to power in the UK, the year Princess Diana died and the year Bertie Ahern became Taoiseach on this side of the water. And in many ways, it was the year Britpop reached its height and the year it began to wind down. Tonight, we're talking about Blur's self-titled album released that year, which features the likes of Beetlebum, Song 2 and some other great tunes that I'm sure we'll talk about. And we're absolutely honoured to welcome a fantastic journalist, critic and author to the show. He's written books such as The Last Party, Britpop, Blair and The Demise of English Rock. He's presented fantastic documentaries like uh, The Britpop Story. And he's written for all the great music magazines and uh, papers. He writes for The Guardian and his name is John Harris. Welcome to the show, John. How's it going? It's even better now you give me that lovely introduction. <laughs> Not sure I deserve it, but thank you. John, it's, it's, written, I, it's true. I have, I'm one of the few people who wrote for all three music weeklies while they were around. It's, in it's short a, order. It's, it's a massive pleasure to have you on the show, John. It's um, nice to do this. It's it, absolutely fine. Blur by Blur, 25 years on. We're going to get into this record or we're going to go deep. But before we go deep, can we wind back a bit to the 90s? Because if uh, journalism is the first draft of history, then uh, it could be said that you wrote the first draft. Was the 90s, I mean, when you look back and I had a great chat of some in preparation for this pile of people that I, that I'm, you know, I, who were from my era and uh, remember that era well. When you look back on it, John, how do you feel that, at what point did it end and did it ever end? Are we still in a kind wow, of- what a question. I think that well, so uh, Tony Wilson, the 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 co-founder of Factory Records and great musical cultural intellectual, I think he said that the 1990s started when Ride on Time by Black Box got to number one, which is the point at which Acid House and that whole thing sort of went overground, and that, to my mind, drew a line under the 80s. I think I mean I really you know I, the 80s is when I sort of cut my teeth musically, and. Um, Amazing music was made, and I'm I'm sort of more nostalgic for the 80s than the 90s, really. I think there was more music of substance probably made in the 1980s. But it was a very sort of divided, often sort of cold, uh, sometimes quite sad, miserable time, a time of sort of huge change, but loss as well, you know, the miners' strike and Thatcher and all of that. And you had to choose which side you were on, which it gets quite tiring after a while. And then Acid House comes along and, and sort of says, well, none of that matters anymore. Let's just get out of it and celebrate our sort of common humanity. And I suppose that, the, and then this sort of giddy hedonistic mood, if you think of the 90s in those terms, that definitely starts with Acid House. I suppose, you know, politically and culturally, you could say the 90s started with the fall of the Berlin Wall. 89, 88, 89. I mean, 1989 is a big, exciting, amazing year to my mind. Stone Roses and Happy Mondays top, on top of the pops. Berlin Wall comes down. Pacific State by 808 State. The height of Manchester and all that. I was lucky enough to be around for that. I was in Manchester at least some of the time. So that's when it kind of starts. I think it starts with Acid House, really. And I would say it, 
I mean, you can you make the argument, I suppose, that it ends when everyone starts to get, or a lot of people start to get disillusioned with Tony Blair, which is sort of 1998. But I would say, in terms of reminding us the world was a complicated, difficult, often dangerous place, and there was more to life than either being drunk or hungover, I would say 9-11, really. I definitely felt that 9-11 drew the curtain on something. And I think that was probably that was probably a lot of the things I associate with the 90s. So you get sort of 11 years. In a very 90s way, you get sort of extra year beyond the 10. But that's yeah. nothing all that unusual. I mean, the 60s arguably started in 62 and ended in 71. Or, you know what I mean? They never quite fit the decades. But I think that mood lasted from 88, 89 till about 2001. I remember... Uh... There was a book written at the end of the 90s called What the Fuck Was That All About? Can't remember the name of the order. John Robb wrote that. Yeah, there we go. And fine book. But I remember reading it and saying, this is kind of, it was quite optimistic, you know? And there was a best is yet to come vibe off it. Most of the critiques culturally since they've drawn a line under it and said, maybe the best wasn't yet to come. Um, But (laughs) you don't agree, John, no? I don't know what you mean in the sense that John well, Robb was sort of saying that it was only the beginning of something. Yeah, I mean... No, I feel it was the end. I mean, the reason my book, the, the book I wrote about Britpop, I'll hold up, called The Last Party, has the subtitle, The Demise, you know, The End of English Rock, was I think, in re- you know, we were taking a bit of a punt saying that. But I think in retrospect, we weren't far off. I mean, you know, guitar music as, as, a, as a sort of a cultural force that's cent- central to everything. And which sort of dictates which way the wind's blowing. That's finished, as far as I can tell. There's still a lot of it around, and I buy a lot of it, right? And there are plenty of records by new bands with guitars that I really like. (laughs) But it's not at the centre of the the culture like it used to be, right? Yeah. In any way. So um, I think in that sense, the 90s sort of, you know, was the end of various things. And it was the end of various things as well, because there's a sort of arc of what happened with independent alternative whatever you want to call it music whereby it went from nighttime radio and the college circuit and little dingy clubs to oasis playing in nebworth in front of a total of two hundred fifty thousand people it went so overground it sort of lost its meaning and after that in any case there was nowhere left for it to go so in that sense it was the end of something as well and what you got after it you know is not my favorite music in the world you know the guitar music you got after you know just as the 90s turned into the noughties was what stereophonics, Coldplay, all that, Travis, you know, it's not, it isn't, it's not the sort of music that makes me want to jump up and down, really. Uh, before we get on to the to the album, which is the, the meat and drink of the show, the uh, Blur by Blur, just a final thought that I, I have in relation to Britpop and I suppose politics. I mean, if you cast your mind back to 97, I remember the interview in NME for the launch of the album, Damon said he's going to vote Labour and... Um, Dave Rentree later became a Labour councillor or ran for Labour. Graham Coxon was Green Party, I think. Alex Jones said at the time he was a Tory, though I'm not sure. Alex James, don't call him Alex Jones. He's a sorry. He's a conspiracy theory guy. Alex James. <laughs> Alex James said he was a, a Tory. But is there something, uh, John, in the idea? Now, uh, the, the, you know, there may be a slight tongue in cheek here, but did Britpop lead to Brexit in the sense that did it? No. Uh, no. no? No, that's punted around and has yeah. been in the last couple of years. I think I, I think I might have written something sort of exploring that idea. Uh, it didn't because the age thing is all wrong. And the people who made sure Brexit happened are all old, or most of them are. Mm. And at the time of Britpop, you know what they'd have been sort of 
between 40 and 50 at the youngest. And, and the Britpop generation, of whom I'm one, I suppose, and slightly younger than me, people who are in their teens, the vast majority of them, or a majority of them, voted Remain. So, you know, it didn't put sort of Farageism and all that kind of, you know, Little Englandism and all that on the, on the agenda. But you can, having said that, it might be slightly more complicated than that. You know, the Union Jack became culturally okay at that point. I suppose you can argue that that enabled lots and lots of people to start waving it around. And therefore, some of the Brexiteers sort of came around the back just when you weren't expecting them with the Union Jacks, <laughs> I guess. The other thing I said in a piece I wrote for the New Statesman about all this was, if you explain Britpop to an alien and said, right, now draw, draw me what I've just described, by some accident, they might draw Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson on the zip wire, like ironic, playful, yeah. messing around with these totems of national identity, not being entirely serious about anything, but quite charismatic in a slightly cheap and nasty way, I mm -hmm. suppose. But it's very difficult to say that, that, that there are clear lines to draw. And Britpop certainly wasn't responsible for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, Britpop it, was, about the, uh, was about the sort of... Um, a large chunk of conservative politics and where that had gone after Margaret Thatcher, coupled with how, how rightfully, in my opinion, even if it had the wrong expression, uh, a lot of people living outside big cities in England in particular were pissed off with everything. And I don't really think Blur and Oasis had much to do with that. <laughs> I mean, w w let's cast our minds onto the album uh, itself. So I, I saw Blur play in the RDS in the summer of 96, which was still on the Great Escape era. And, yeah. uh, you know, going back to everything that Blur did, in my opinion, is amazing. Every haircut that they had was amazing. That, I mean, I, I'm going I'm to I'm fight for Blur any day of the week. Well, would you put even The Great Escape, the album before this? Well, I would for most of it. Not wow. Country House and not the, not, the, not the video that accompanied it. But Earl something happens. Same, Mr. Robinson's Quango. Oh, <laughs> bloody hell. Something happens between The Great Escape and Blur. Yeah. And when I saw them, they played two tracks uh, from the album song. Oh, yeah. This was a big outdoor show, wasn't it? I yeah. remember this. Yeah. We sent Stuart McConey to write about that for Select. That was quite a key gig. Yeah. They played it, Chinese bombs at that yeah. concert. And, and on Select, I had, the, I remember I've got, I still got it upstairs. I had Damon on the stage and a reporter that Damon left very quickly in the after party after, with Justine. And yeah, goes, yeah. All the pictures are black and white. I remember laying yeah. that feature out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but something remarkable happens because they played song two and Chinese bombs, but it's the, the, the versions that they played are more akin to something that you would hear on uh, The Great Escape. Something happens between Great Escape and Blur. What is it that happens? That's the question, really, isn't well, it? Well, by, by the time that they're sort of well on the road touring The Great Escape in late 95, early 96, then through to the summer, success is not sitting and fame are not sitting terribly easy with them or certainly not with all of them so alex james loves it and he's down the grouch go every night and he's you know drinking the gross domestic product of a developing world country in champagne you know and um i'm not sure about dave roundtree i think he's having he sooner or later quit drinking but Graham Coxon really reacts terribly badly to the fact their audience now, the most sort of the most audible, loud element in their audience is teenage girls, and they're a pop group or a scene as a pop group. Uh, and you know, they're making records like Country House and the ones I just mentioned somewhat disdainfully. Mr. Robinson's Quango. Uh, what else is a bit like that? 
It could be What's used. the one that goes that yeah, it could be used like that. Although I quite like that. It sounds like XTC deliberately. But um, you know, it's the songs that go ba dum bum ba ba bum bum ba the blur stomp, they called it. Uh, and he doesn't like it, and he's going out with one of Huggy Bear, who are this quite avant-garde riot girl, really exciting actually, riot girl group. And um, so the band are pulling in different directions. And Damon Albarn is the chief sort of creative force. He's sort of caught in the middle somewhat. And I remember, this is in the book I wrote, but I remember I was working at Q Magazine by then. Have you got loads of those in your attic as well? Yes, plenty. <laughs> so there's a cover with blur on it looking really brassed off. And it says something like a band in the middle of a nervous breakup. I can't remember. And um, the, the journalist Adrian Devoy, who wrote that, was very honest about the fact that, it, it, you know, they were coming apart, basically. And um, the question was how they would resolve that. And they had to accommodate the fact that Graham Coxon didn't really want to make the kind of music that they'd made on The Great Escape and Part Life anymore. I don't think David Albarn did, really. But Graham was pulling well away from all that. And he developed this interest in American, you know, indie rock, alternative rock, alt rock. He liked pavement. And then I think going back, he liked a lot of the music that preceded Nirvana and the Pixies, that mission of Burma and all that stuff. Um, the Minutemen, if you ever read um, yeah. Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarad, one of the best books ever written about rock music. They're all in that. You know, the sort of seeds of American college rock and what became American punk rock in the 80s and all that. So well, how are they going to accommodate this, those two things? And so they had to come to an understanding. And as far as I can recall off the top of my head, I think they wrote each other letters or Graham Coxon wrote Damon a letter explaining why he felt the way that he did and they had to sort of patch things up. And then they went into the studio to make consciously, which reflects the fact that Albarn, you know, like PJ Harvey and David Bowie and all the best British artists, to my mind, um, always has that restless, every record's got to be different from the last one thing going on, you know. And so that's what they did. And then all these stories that when they went in the studio, Graham Coxon said he was going to tune his guitars once and then just never tune them again. And Stephen Street, the producer, was having heart attacks, thinking, well, I'm not going to let you do that. He used to go in the studio at night and retune them. I think Alex James said it was a bit like you bought a pair of trainers and then you scuffed them up deliberately. The music was deliberately unprettified. But it was just as well that it was, really, because we'll come on to this in a minute, I'm sure, because it meant that the record felt fresh and different and they'd gone somewhere. Whereas by that point, most of Britpop was Herbert's in Cagoules, who wanted to sound like Oasis. Mm. So they were the first band who'd been centrally associated with Britpop, I think, to say we've had enough of this, we want to do something different. And thank God they did, you know. It's interesting you mentioned Graham's um, guitar. I saw a, an interview with him um, for one of the guitar magazines, and he said that uh, on this album, uh, he didn't really play guitar, he played effects. Um, and if you listen to a lot of the songs, you know, he has quite interesting textures and, 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 and so on throughout the album. And this is definitely a, a different direction, as you say, from their, from their other stuff. It's less kind of, um, I suppose, Only Fools and Horses-esque and more serious in some ways. Like it starts with Beetle Bum. Uh, you don't like that comment? No, I'm not sure. See, the thing is Blair and Misunderstood in that sense. There aren't yeah. that many songs like Sunday, Sunday and, you know, uh, Arnold Same and all those ones. There are one or two, you know. But yeah. on Park Life, there are lots of beautiful, very sort of authentic, personal, emotional songs. Bad Head is like that. End of a Century is like that. This is a yeah, Low is like, like that, that yeah. right? 
And then on The Great Escape, as maligned as it is, and there are songs on that that I'm not that keen on, but um, he thought of Cars is like that. Yuko and Hero is a bit like that. The Universal, I think, is great, you know. So, and they're all sort of pretty serious, deep pieces of music. So mm. I think it can be overstated how much they completely reinvented themselves. It wasn't like that. I just think they took a strand of their music or an approach to it that had always been there and then really, really ran with it. I remember thinking about it. I hadn't thought about this up to this minute, but I went to see them launch this record. I think they played the Astoria yeah, in London, Astoria, a deliberately yeah. small venue. And they played Oily Water, which is on Modern Life is Rubbish. Because there's a sort of lost Blur album after the first one, which really like Modern Life is Rubbish. It's, it's much more sort of, it's not consciously British at all, a lot of this music. And it's much more sort of experimental and probably led chiefly by Graham. And Oily Water is indicative of that. And they brought Oily Water back into the set as if to say, oh, we're these people again now. So I think they were tapping back into something within themselves at the same time as sustaining other things that were on The Great Escape and Park Life. I mean, look inside America's on this record, and you could put that on Park Life or The Great Escape, and you wouldn't really notice the joint, apart from the fact that it's saying America's really great. And, and, you weren't, and they definitely were not saying that on those records, but musically it fits. I think you could put Beetlebum on Park Life, arguably, and it, it wouldn't sit that awkwardly. So it's complicated, but, but something definitely changed. The, the, the image certainly changes. I mean, if you look at the... I mean, oh, yeah, that's the, true. The, the Beetlebum video, which relaunches, the, which is the, you know, the, the, it's the lead single and it's, the, it's your introduction to the album. Yeah. And stylistically, I mean, that is a huge change. And uh, it, it's a terrific, you know, the, the, ter the, the image of the band suddenly becomes far darker. It becomes far more personal, I think, because he doesn't... I mean, the thing about Damon, what he's doing oftentimes, he's doing characters, isn't he? So... Yeah, that's he, true of those. Yes, as much, notwithstanding what I said a moment ago, that's yeah. definitely a point of difference. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, if you look at the park life, you've got, okay, you've got London Loves and you've got To The End. So you've got all sorts of different things going on, but he ditches all of that and goes personal uh, in Blur. And I think that's... Yeah, and quite, uh, yeah and quite sort of a, a bleak. Yeah. It's quite hard to tell what some of these songs are about, really. Yeah. Uh, which is true of a lot of great music. And, and not in a crap way, not like... Um, you know, this song's not about anything and I don't care. Yeah. You know, not like shoot an apple off my head or whatever, you know. You could, you could hear, I mean, Beetlebum <laughs> is, is is quite, uh, you, you know, there's there's quite a lot of things suggested, but it's it's open to it. Well, we all know what it suggests, but no one had the brains to realise it at the time. Yeah. It's pretty obvious in retrospect what it's about. Yeah. It's about heroin, right? But um, yeah, no one really twigged out at the time, which is hard, really, considering in the fade out, he sings, he's on, he's on, he's on it. Mm. it's not terribly subtle but um, we were all innocent then John could you talk us through your top three tracks on the album I will reach for my top three tracks <laughs> uh, well Beetlebum is one of them my kids really like that song my son does in particular he's 15 he always wants me to put it on in the car um, and I think it's great it's great because it's very accessible you know, again, it, it, it sort of cuts across this idea that this was a kind of a difficult record. I don't think it's a difficult record at all, incidentally. I think it's quite, it's very easy and accessible and open and and all that, you know, you just, there are a few sort of avant-garde elements to it along the way. But um, Beetlebum is like that. It's a great pop song. But it has all these sort of slightly skewed elements. It's very hard. When it starts, it's very hard to know when the music's going to come in. As Alex James said, where's the one? Where does the bar start? There aren't many songs like that. 
I actually tried making a Spotify playlist of them. It has Get the Message by Electronic. Everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. Easy to slip by Little Feet, and that's the only ones I could think of. So it's very hard to know when everything comes in. It starts in this weird way. Um, it's got a great guitar solo. Very simply done. Uh, I love the bit where the music dies away, and he does that, and when she lets me slip, and then she let, when she lets me slip away, that bit is great. Yeah. It's long for a single. And also he was carrying on having a bit of a war with Oasis in a very, in a slightly more sort of underhand, interesting way, because it's it's clearly consciously meant to sound like the Beatles on the White Album. It has the same sort of sound as Happiness is a Warm Gun and I'm So Tired, which you can hear on Strange Ways. Here we come with the Smiths as well. Death of a Disco Dancer sounds like that, deliberately. And I remember him saying in interviews, as I'm sure you will, uh, I want Noel to realise this is closer to the Beatles than what he's doing, which I'm sure made Noel feel very good and, and instantly healed the rift between bands. So that I really love. Uh, Look Inside America I really like. I didn't know this at the time, but I now realise it's pretty much a straight pastiche of Mott the Hoople. I didn't know anything about Mott the Hoople at the time, really. Uh, he sings very like Ian Hunter on it. I just think it's a lovely, lovely song. I love its sense of waking up in the morning. Yeah. When I wake up in a hotel, which I have to occasionally, good morning, lethargy, drink Pepsi, it's good for energy. The bat's on, smoke in the bedroom, something, something, and on my neck, a nasty bruise. It's a great opening line. Yeah, terrific. That's really great. Uh, I love the harp on that as well. It's beautifully arranged. And then, because I'm a still a music journalist, really, and I'm a bit of a wanker, I thought I'd pick Essex Dogs to finish. <laughs> I, think Graham, I, I don't think Graham would agree with you, John, on that Which one. isn't exactly a banger. But uh, no. I made a documentary years, a radio documentary years ago about music and the suburbs. And I went to Colchester, where they're from. And with the producer of the show, we drove around with Essex Dogs on the car stereo and it all fitted beautifully. I love that line about the light at night looking like orange aid, because that's what places like Colchester look like at night. And that sense of menace in pubs and all that. You know, I grew up in a place not... It was a bit posher than Colchester, but I remember, you know, nights in the in the eighties as a sort of fifteen or sixteen year old Herbert trying to get into pubs underage and all that. A lot of that song rings true. Constantly fearing getting duffed up, and then someone saying, "Sorry, mate, I got the wrong lad." That happened to me a couple of times. It sort of evokes that really well. So there are my three. You're gonna do yours. Yeah, you want to go first then. Okay, I'll go. I'll go first. So, um, I like um. Beetle bum, um, and I told an embarrassing story on the show before, um, that I was eleven when this album came out, and um, I remember going into uh, our local record shop, and I had my pocket money, and I picked up two singles in my hand. One of them was Beetle bum, and the other one was Who Do You Think You Are by the Spice Girls. And to my absolute shame, eleven-year-old uh, me walked out with Who Do You Think You Are by. Uh, the We've Spice all done Girls. that, man. Yeah, We've yeah, all yeah, been yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when yeah, I was that. 11, I went to WH Smith's and it was the bucket. You're far too young to remember any of this. It was either the Bucket of Water song, which was a novelty record brought out by the cast of a kid's TV show called Tiz Was, or My Perfect Cousin by The Undertone, which is fucking great. great and I show. bought the Bucket of Water song. Um, so I did it too. I was about 11. <laughs> well, we're doing a special episode on the Bucket of Water song in a few weeks. You <laughs> might come back on and talk to us about it. Um, Song two, um, I know, it, it, you know, I'm picking the easy ones here. 
But again, my memory of this, just I'm just going personal with my, my stories here. I remember it. Sky used it on an advertisement for the film Starship Troopers, which came out that year. Um, and that was my as, as an 11 year old, that was my introduction to that song. Um, and I loved it. And I remember everyone in the schoolyard uh, singing it up into that stage in my schoolyard. Oasis were really the big band. Um, right, but, right, right. But, 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 but that ad brought, brought Blur um, to, to my class. So uh, there you go. And That's then after, telly. yeah, 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 telly. Yeah. And then after that, uh, I like, um, it's kind of like, I, I like country sad ballad, man. I like MOR. Um, and I do like Chinese bombs as well. It's hard for me to pick between those um, songs. Um, but as, as a whole, the album, it's just a, a great listen. Um, Paul, what, what about you? What, what, what are your top three? I mean, Interesting choices that both of you made. I mean, Beetlebum is, is is the one is is the one that just is, still blows me away anytime I, I hear it. But I mean, I could pick most of the tracks off this album and say I could listen to them right now and, and really enjoy them. I love Dead of a Party. Love that melancholy. Yeah, that's great. It's it's terrific. And there's a nod in it. And I love the the way. I mean, remember as well. There's the Icelandic part of this as well that they went off to Iceland. Or yeah, yeah. House and yeah, you, know, yeah. you can see that creeping in. And of course, he's right back there now with his latest record. But I like that melancholy that's in Dead of a Party and and this kind of specialist thing that's running through it. And you can get that experimental sound that Damon is going at. I, I think Graham's influence on this album is the thing that you gotta you, you just it's just right there throughout I mean we talked earlier about the guitar sounds I think You're So Great is just a terrific uh, tune it's quite fun as well as a bit of, you know but there's a there's a kind of a real again there's that melancholy in the thing running through. Oh yeah I think that's the, yeah. one of those hangovers that in its own way is quite sort of comforting. Yeah. It's a bit <laughs> like that like when your hangover's being nice to you it's, like, it's a bit like that isn't it? Yeah I agree with that. I love Countryside Ballad Man. It was it it, it was the um, first song other than Beetlebum that I heard off the album because they uh, they Fallon played it um, pretty early on when he had the when he had the album. So that was in the course in the era where you know remember that John where they where they where the, the DJs would get the album before it was released and play the tracks and you'd be there taping them off it. You know, I do I mean, remember that. I, it just blew me away, Countryside Ballad Man. I think it's so good and it's the sound of a band growing up as well. Because yeah, that's fair. I mean that one. That's the most, I think, the most, apart from Essex Dogs, and You're So Great, but as a sort of full band performance, that's the, that's the most different from The Great Escape and Park Life. Yeah. To play that would, would be the way of announcing yeah. something has happened here, folks. I think that's right. It's the only song that sounds like American indie rock, because the other thing we haven't talked about is that um, they were going on and on about pavement at the time, yeah. or Damon was, which Graham liked. And sort of pavement got reinvented as Damon Albarn's favourite group. We're supposed to, I mean, they were supposed to be like, well, come on, we've been going longer than this, you know. We're, we're, a, we're a band in our own, right? I mean, Stanton and Enchanted was what? 10 years before? No, maybe less than that, 92, five years before. Six years before. So um, that was a bit odd. But, you know, they were definitely going out of their way, Blur, to go on about pavement. Yeah. But the only song that sounds like it's sort of from that place on the record really is Country Sad Ballad. It does, you know, it sounds a bit like Beck as well. It sounds a bit like yeah. those tracks on the Milo Gold, like Pay No Mind by Beck. It has a bit of that about it, I suppose. And that's that's the interesting thing about this record. I mean, it's got a, 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 a track like that, and then it's got a track like On Your Own, which arguably you could, if you strip back the guitar a bit, you could throw on The Great Escape. Yeah, you probably uh, could. And, you know, so, so, I mean, that's the interesting thing about Blur, 
they, I mean, I mean, I, I agree with, I mean, I think you said yourself, John, that the 13 was where things start really coming. Yeah, up. I think that's and right. I think 13 you know, is what we were told blur by blur was yeah. like this radical venture into the avant-garde. It wasn't really. And 13 is that record. Because yeah. the other thing that runs through all of their work, right, there's always a David Bowie, after leisure anyway, once Damon Albarn meets Justine Frischman, who turns him on to David Bowie, um, that starts to become a recurrent sort of influence, which you hear in various places. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of the tracks, it, 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 they promised a great departure. Stylistically, they delivered a great departure. Lyrically, they delivered a great departure, but musically, not always. Even a track like Chinese Bombs, in its more popular version, it almost sounds like something like Bank Holiday from Parklife or some of the stuff that's on uh, Modern Life is Rubbish. So they, you know, they, they are the masters of disguise in some ways, Blur, aren't they? There's always... There's always quite a lot uh, going on in terms of how they present their records. But totally. I, mean, I, I think one of the terrific things uh, that they did was that they the audience was beginning to grow up a bit. And if they had released, I mean, Damon wouldn't have done it anyway. But if, if you got another great escape, that just wasn't going to work. Because, you know, so they, they managed to evolve <laughs> with their audience, I think. And, and I just, I, you know, for me, it stands up as one of the great, one of the best floor records. Uh, yeah, I think when they all came out again on vinyl, this was the first one I bought, which must tell you something. Like I could have bought any of them and I bought this one. I suppose because it's less, the other thing is, it's much less rooted in Britpop. Yeah. See, as soon as you hear Phil Daniels, God love him, or, um, or Girls and Boys, or you hear Country House... They're very of their time, you know, like a lot of pop music is. Whereas I think this record is is less indelibly connected to the 90s. You know, it still stands up in that regard because the lyrics are oblique. They're not singing about England and Britain and any of that. So that enables it, I think, to sort of, uh, to have endured a bit better. I will say this, though, I haven't mentioned this. Charmless Man, I think, predicts Boris Johnson, you see. Mm. Perfectly. That line, he, I think he'd like to have been Ronnie Cray, but then nature didn't make him that way. It's just, I mean, it's spot on. I tweet that all the time about Boris Johnson. Okay, John, so. we have a, a quick fire round of questions. They're completely random questions we're going to throw at you. They're going to put you under immense pressure. About this record? You're not going to start asking me about uh, no, who won no, the Grand no, National no, in 1994 or something no, like that? No, they're going to be completely at random. Um, okay. You know, um, questions designed to get you in trouble. Um, so, so the first question is, and just just give us your, your your the first thing that comes into your head, right? Manchester or Liverpool? Manchester. Why? Well, I'm, I was born there. I grew up about thirteen miles away, and it's the it's it's a not that Liverpool isn't, but you know, we haven't talked about this, but I think we talked about acid house, but I think Manchester. I'm, I feel more fondly about Manchester in that period probably than the Britpop period, you know. And Happy Mondays remain, I think, Happy Mondays and the Smiths, apart from the Beatles, Happy Mondays and the Smiths are probably my two favourite rock groups. So there you go. Brilliant. EastEnders or Coronation Street? <laughs> well, I've watched EastEnders more. I was banging to it in the Den and Angie era. And to be uh, in a way that I never watched, I never really watched Coronation Street in that way, never habitually watched Coronation Street at all. So I'd say EastEnders, strangely, I would say EastEnders. Coronation Street set in Salford. I'm from, you know, the southern bit of the Mancunian sprawl. So that might explain that one. Okay, the most cliched question in the history of music, Blur or Oasis? Blur. I like Oasis. I like the first two Oasis albums a lot, you know. Uh, But, you know, as a, 
as a sort of consistent and interesting body work, the band who reinvented themselves a lot or progressed a lot and went in all sorts of different directions. And certainly as far as uh, Damon and Graham, who were, the, who were the two most musically active members, you know, what they what they have done since in its different ways has been very interesting and exciting very regularly. So, um, yeah, Blur, really. Blur, I think, as I wrote in The Guardian many years ago, I think Blur are our Beatles, who are my generation's Beatles. And, I, you know, I think Oasis might be our generation's... Well, as Stephen Maltmer said, you know, they're a great British pop group in the tradition of Slade, which isn't to knock them. They put out these great anthemic rock songs and got a massive audience, but it's a different thing, you know. Blur are from the sort of art school, you know, exploratory, innovative end of British music, and I suppose, therefore, I prefer them. Okay. If, if, I thought you would say if, if Blur are the Beatles, maybe Oasis are the Parker Monkeys. Um, but That's a Noel have... Gallagher expression, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it well, is. And they're certainly not the Rolling Stones, because they weren't, you know, they weren't hanging around with aristocrats and making records about the devil and things and they're like Slade I love Slade I'm not knocking Slade I mean I think Slade are great you know yeah. and Slade were a very very big group you know and Oasis are in that pantheon really like the T-Rex's run of singles they're that sort of group which is fine you know but it's a different thing yeah 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 and, and okay Daily Mail or Daily Express God ne- uh, neither <laughs> well, I, 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 which of us yeah. well the Daily Express is sort of bonkers isn't it Daily <laughs> The Daily Express is the one that's always... It started off being all about Princess Diana every minute, and now it's all about, come on, Boris, save us, and it went sort of crazily <laughs> pro-Brexit. The Daily Mail has a bigger readership, doesn't it? Yeah. But I don't... Um, I mean, I, you know, I buy the Daily Mail very occasionally just to sort of be in, be in, inspired in a very reverse way to write something, just to find out what the other side's thinking. Yeah. And I've never, I don't think I've ever bought the Daily Express. So in that sense, you know, that might give you an answer. Okay. But Night I don't in... think either of them are very healthy influence on British political discourse. Night so in put it or... mildly. <laughs> night in or night out? Uh, night out. I haven't had one for so long. I'm old and I'm a parent and lockdown happens and all that. But um... Okay. And when they uh... happen, they're great. I went, there was that one night we, uh, during the 2019 election, we went to Grimsby. I, mean, I, went, to a, I went to an indie club. And they had a jukebox, and I'd probably put on. They had, it was full of blur and suede and oasis, and I was ten sheets to the wind, and it was fucking great. <laughs> so we night out. Please. Sounds good. Sounds as wild as one of Boris Johnson's parties. Uh, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there was no uh, M&S picnic food, <laughs> and there okay. certainly wasn't soup. I, I wish it was a suitcase full of wine. <laughs> Funny, um, we get we. I mean, in in Dublin, we get. You get the Daily Express for some bizarre reason and loads of news agents. And I've absolutely no idea why or who is reading I it. I can't see that being a large Irish audience. I, I, I don't know Dublin. what's going on, guys, but you can in get the it. City, a... I mean, maybe it's for, maybe it's for, 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 um, for I, I don't know, maybe for British people, some, some section. Stag dudes or something. Yeah, Sorry? Yeah, but there'd be, have, have to be stag dudes for like 60 year old Brexits. <laughs> <laughs> Third marriage. Widowers <laughs> getting married again. I don't know. <laughs> okay, final final quick fire question. I like then. these. Keep them coming. This is good. Go on. Yeah. Uh, c- contemporary album that you'd recommend our listeners to check out. Wow, what a question. Uh, what have I bought lately? Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, hold on. This one here. I've forgotten the title of it. On All Fours by Goat Girl. Came out in 2021, I think. Okay. Uh, Johnny Marr. 
the great Johnny Marr, 2020 it came out. Johnny Marr um, is on the cover of the latest Uncut magazine and he put together the CD that you got on the front. And I put it on, this is only about a week ago, and a record, and a song called Sad Cowboy is on that compilation CD. And I said, "What? what's this? It's great, because it starts off being sort of, um, sort of slightly danceable, uh, but reasonably straight indie rock. And then it suddenly goes acid house halfway through. And I thought, this is interesting. So then I, from Piccadilly Records in Manchester, my second or sometimes my first favourite record shop, I ordered this on Mail Order. And it's really great. And one thing I said, rock music's finished, but the only people doing anything interesting with guitars, 90% of them, as far as I can tell, are women. And um, I mean, I think boy, boys and men with guitars, you know, stay, the stay away to heaven guitar shop tendency, I think that's finished. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Goat Girl are sort of true to that. So I'd reckon an on all fours by Goat Girl. I bought that and Entertainment by Gang of Four from Rough Trade in, uh, from up in Bristol the same day. So as far as present and past are concerned, they were, they're my two most recent purchases. My, my turn now to do the rapid fire, John. And yes. Oh, we're doing some more. Oh, there's more. Melody Maker or Enemy? Oh, Enemy, every time. Why? Uh, I worked at Melody Maker for a year and it wasn't a terribly happy experience. Uh, I liked Melody Maker, really innovative design-wise, particularly. Um, but... It, it was a style of music writing which was done brilliantly by um, Simon Reynolds, the writer. But there were a lot of people trying to be him and not being quite as good at it. And The Enemy was funnier, apart from anything else. The Enemy had um, Andrew Collins and Stuart McConey and David Quantity writing for it. So when I arrived there, I felt I, I felt it was my spiritual home. Although Melody Maker was only on the floor above. You know that. People have this idea that they were rivals who would you know, on different sides of London and all that. We were in the we were in the same building. It would get somewhat testy in the pub sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the, the enemy was my favourite, no doubt about it. But looking back on it, what strikes me, to be honest with you, I mean, the enemy maybe did more politics sort of stuff, but they're very, very similar. Even no, so, I don't think they were similar. I don't. No, you don't think they were similar. No, not at all. Very different. I think they were. Melody Maker was uh, much more sort of art for art's sake, as you say. It didn't have those agendas. Like the enemy went very political in the eighties, and I don't think the Melody Maker did nearly as much. <laughs> Um, and the Melody Maker, it, it was it was a famous review by Steve Sutherland, who later became the editor of The Enemy, but when he was at the Melody Maker, he reviewed Kingmaker and Suede and said, Kingmaker with The Enemy and Suede with The Melody Maker, and it went through all these things, and it said dog shit and diamonds, that The Enemy was dog shit and The Melody Maker with diamonds. I and mean, it was pretty pronounced, that rivalry. But... And, uh, you know, the Melody Maker was quite sniffy about a lot of the music that Steve Lamack was promoting because it felt it wasn't sort of in-depth and arty and substantial enough. But I quite liked it, you know. And there were groups in Ma that Melody Maker would go balmy about, like Mercury Rev, that didn't really cut through in enemy world. Yeah, so they were that, different. They had different agendas. Certainly by the sort of early 90s, they were very different papers. It, it's it's such a different era. I mean, I remember very well Melody Maker's promotion of Deserter songs by and uh, you know by Mercury Rev. And you know it, that was the era when a, when a, a music album would would be broken by the music press. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally different era. But now. it's not. I mean, there were there were great writers on the Melody Maker. Simon Reynolds was a Stud Brothers. Really, really good writers. You know. So um, it, I always used to buy it. You know. That was the great thing in those days. You could go to the news agent and uh, yeah, and you just this huge volume of stuff to read about music every day, every Wednesday. Q or select? 
Wow, what a question. Well, I picked Select because I, I ran it. I was the, at age 26. <laughs> I was the editor. Uh, but I carried on writing for Q. And I went back to writing for Q. Again, they were only down the corridor from each other. Uh, Q smelled better. They had, they had more fragrant paper. And they all used to arrive from the printers. But no, I was in charge of it, or nominally in charge of a team at Select. And we had a right laugh and sponsored Glastonbury and all sorts. So I'd pick Select if I had to. But again, I feel sort of, I feel very affectionately about both. Yeah, I mean, I, just to, we might return quickly to, to Blur before we finish up because we usually do a thing, John, where we kind of see if we can give a summation of a great record and we see if we can, you know, how, how we'd sum it up. And I suppose for me, when I think about this record, I just think a super collection of songs that I still listen to that I think really gave all the, the gave the band a future because you couldn't imagine 13 or think tank or magic whip without this one it was a yeah, bridge that's true uh, you couldn't imagine what damon did after without this it was a bridge um and for me it's a terrific album that's just stood the test of time and uh, but as i said i love all blur albums i mean i, I love leisure i love great escape as well i love the b-side so- tunes like yeah 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 so yeah. you know i suppose my judgment is a little less uh, discerning than others how would you guys go Tell me that. Tell me again the question. How would you sum up this album? In God, of- what a question! <laughs> what an impossible question. How would you sum it up? I'm just going to say great. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> just pick a superlative. Yeah. Uh, I think it's when they become the band that on on the assumption they're going to get together again, maybe in the near future. I think uh, enduringly they become the band they're going to be for a long time afterwards in various ways, you know, because I suppose, because they cease dressing up, right. They're not wearing costumes quite so much. There's less artifice here. So it's sort of, it's, it's the, it's the genuine essential them. And then that endures subsequently through 13. What comes after 13? Think tank. Yeah. can't remember. Yeah. Uh, and then onto the magic whip. You're right. So uh, yeah, I think it's the, I think it's right that it's called blur by blur. Cause it's arguably the first, 100% true, this is who we are, Blur album. If I was right, I had to write something, journal, you know, pretentious music journalist, I'd say that. <laughs> I, music journalists aren't pretentious, are they? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> do we even do it? <laughs> I suppose. What did Elvis Costello say? Oh, no, he did. it wasn't Elvis Costello, was it? It was Frank Zappa who said writing about music was like dancing about architecture. Which isn't true at all. It's a very obvious thing to do. And I've never seen anyone dance about architecture. But I've seen lots of people write about music. There were things about Britpop that weren't very good. It was very white. Yeah. And, and sooner or later, quite soon after the initial sort of experimental period, it was very narrow in its influences. Yeah. Um, and certainly when it became sort of post or sub-oasis, it was really like that. And um, to the point that some of it sounded like Jerry and the Pacemaker. It sounded like Jerry and the Pacemakers, the louder guitars, you know. You could imagine someone around the corner singing, I like it, I like it. Uh, and, you know, it, it did blur developed, but the rest of it didn't really. Yeah. And I think that's to its, that's to its detriment, really. But, um, but you could have everything at once in that period. That's the other thing. Let's not reduce the 90s to Britpop, right? Because a, a lot of amazing experimental dance music came out during that period, you know. 
so-called trip hop happened. American music was really interesting. And then all this weird other nostalgic retro stuff came out. Sex Pistols got back together. Beatles anthology, (laughs) Free as a Bird and all that. There's loads of stuff happens, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, the other thing to think about, and I think this is relevant here, right, is that Blur, and they weren't the only ones, Oasis, this was true. It was true of Suede early on as well, actually. Um, There were these bands that just you could project all this stuff onto, you know, and somehow they they, they were still the sort of music in which the bands could be the center of your life. And somehow there was enough fascination in them that they would be your sort of doorway into everything, you know, in the same way that the jam had been like that for me, or the Smiths had been like that for me, groups were still doing that um, because there weren't many competing options. Right. Even gaming hadn't really got going. I mean, I got a PlayStation around this time, you know, but it wasn't the thing that it is now. And certainly the idea that we'd all be staring at these things that were the size of 20 fags, you know, and the whole world was, supposedly pouring out of them it didn't really happen and so groups rose to that challenge i think blur rose to it particularly well and so they had to have something to say in their interviews their lyrics had to convey something meaningful and substantial and they had to kind of keep moving and all of that and i don't think people think people think musicians are that important anymore uh and it's a shame we haven't got that anymore i mean the other thing as noel gallagher very sagely says in supersonic the oasis film it's hard to i mentioned mobiles a moment ago but in a musical context as well, it's hard to, to um, overestimate, to overstate how much the presence of smartphones has just changed everything. Because you're not in the you're not in the moment, as he says, you know. And so, I mean, you know, you said you went to that big outdoor blur gig in whatever it was in the Irish, it was Dublin, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, or near Dublin. Like six RDS, yeah. Uh, you know, and similarly, I can recall going to see Oasis at Nebworth or Blur at Alexandra Palace and all that. And you willed yourself to get lost in the moment. It was like, here we are, God, here, you know, this is so significant. Look at this. They've, they're even bigger than I've ever thought they were going to be. Isn't this amazing? And you were sort of lost in it. Whereas now you'd be filming it, you know, some 30, ruining your experience for 30 seconds of out of focus pixelated footage that you're never going to watch ever again. So I think that's got in the way as well. So to that extent, I think it was the it was the last of something. It was the last of all sorts of things. I think it was the last of rock as a sort of big potent cultural force. It was the, the last of the gig as a great big communal sort of transcendent experience. Um yeah, and that you know, to and to some extent, I suppose there are tracks on this record you might play as the credits roll. I can imagine that long fade out of Beetlebun and it said, You have been watching. <laughs> and that would have been that well john thanks so much for joining us on the show it's thank you for having me pleasure. it's always like it's like therapy talking about Britpop, so it's good i don't mean therapy the the the, uh, the northern irish loud three-piece i mean you know treatment <laughs> you're listening to the big album show with paul and dan please remember to subscribe hit like and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at the big album show yeah.